Many of us spend our whole life in search of purpose, desperately seeking meaningful ways to make a difference in the world with the short amount of time we are given. Deploying High has been designed to help you analyze what gives you purpose through inspirational, thought-provoking stories and conversation. I'm Nora Firestone, author of the book, Deploying High, about the mission and true purpose of our host. So it is a true pleasure and honor to introduce to you Chief Gene Saunders. Hi, I am Chief Gene Saunders, founder and CEO of Project Lifesaver International. Deploying High is brought to you today by Project Lifesaver International. If you haven't already, I ask you to join our mission of saving lives by subscribing at DeployingHigh.com. Thank you. Today, I am very fortunate to have one of the behind-the-scenes people of Project Lifesaver International, a wonderful gentleman uh, I've known for some time. So let's welcome to the program today Mr. Brad Trahan, who is on our Board of Trustees. Hello, Brad. Good morning, Chief. How are you doing? I am doing good, sir. How are you? Good, thank you. I think we need to do a little background. You know, I know your background, but I want to make sure the listeners also know, you know, who you are and what your your background for this is. And and I know it's it's more to the autism spectrum. So it, how about telling us about how you got into that? Sure, appreciate it. Um, yeah, my wife and I were coming up on a uh, 25 years of marriage just May, so we're blessed uh, to have congratulations, great wife, Tony. Thank you. And um, we have three kids. We have uh, our oldest son, Brennan, is uh, active military in the United States Air Force. Um, we have our son Reese, who's uh, uh, 21, going to be 22 in April. We'll be talking about, and then our daughter Peyton, who's 18, uh, going to a local community college in business management. Um, we had Brennan, of course, uh, he was our first child and things went fine. Um, then Reese came along and had Reese. And um, during the progress of Reese's, uh, you know, you get progress reports. Our local county would send out paperwork saying, you know, how's your, how's your child developing? Are they doing different things at different times? And, you know, I remember getting these reports and quite honestly, uh, you know, I'd have to check them, check off no. Um, and, um, and we got going on more and I said, you know, Johnny, I think we better get him checked out. I mean, it's just something that we needed. He just wasn't developing after, you know, about a year or so the way he should have been. He wasn't saying the necessary words, wasn't doing what he should have been doing. And it, a lot of people, what we learned on the afterwards and the outside looking in knew there was something going on, but it's just a delicate, delicate conversation to have with, uh, um, you know, for them to, to approach us that they had concerns. It just was delicate. So they didn't approach, but went through and did all this testing for autism. And Gene, as it relates to autism at the time, um, and then at the time I always thought of the, the show Rain Man, and that's something that always comes up, you know, as far as Rain Man. And then um, went through all this testing that we had to do. It was through OT and speech and evaluations. There's really no blood test for autism. There's, it's all behavioral based. It's through, you know, neurologists and psychologists and things like that. There's not a magical wand, so to say, a blood work, x-ray, MRI. So then in January of 2003, which is just before Reese's third birthday, um, we sat at the Mayo Clinic and uh, they said that uh, Reese um, didn't just have autism, he had severe autism. And at that point, it was very life-changing, Chief. It was uh, one of those things where I think many of us maybe kind of get into the mindset that we're going to all have happy, healthy kids and things are going to be just fine. And on that date, it threw us a curveball. And, you know, then the biggest thing is what's next. I mean, so he, he he's nonverbal. He's nonverbal to this day. Um, and he's going to be approaching his 22nd birthday. 
So at that point, um, my wife and I, we, we try to, you know, look at life and say, you know, everyone's going through something and we have two options. We could either feel sorry for ourselves or we could say, what can we do to make a difference? And at the time when he was diagnosed, the Mayo Clinic doctor said, you know what, this is the typical, this is the type of therapy that your son needs for a successful quality life to the best of his ability. The problem was the insurance side at the time of Mayo Clinic said, no, we're not covering for it. Insurance for individuals like Reese and his peers on the severe end, uh, the cost for that therapy could be up to $100,000 a year. Uh, I knew I was going to advocate hard for this at this point, Gene, and I was a Mayo Clinic employee. And uh, I, I will say to this day, they are the world's finest medical institution uh, we have in the nation and internationally. However, in this aspect, that came up short. Uh, so I resigned. I advocated hard. Fast forward after 13 years and eight months of advocating Mayo Clinic for this type of insurance, they changed their policy. Now all their employees, dependents who are diagnosed with autism can get this therapy. Um, it was too late for Reese at this point, but it's never been a just about Reese. Um, so uh, that's how we got involved in it. We're very passionate about it. Um, we always remind people that individuals like Reese, while he may not be able to speak, doesn't mean he can't hear. Um, you know, we, you learn as a parent to navigate, navigate different things. You read your kids. We all read our kids. So it's been a journey. We've had many, um, we've had many smiles and we've had many tears. And, uh, but um, it's, a, it's a demanding diagnosis. Probably about, you know, up to 70% of our marriages out there that have a child with autism and their marriage and divorce. Uh, the financial restraints um, are unbelievable. I will tell you this, Gene, our backs were up against the wall. We, uh, we had to, you know, I cashed in my retirement. We did everything we could to, uh, to pay for Reese's therapy. And at one point we had to decide, are we going to keep a, a roof in our head and food on the table or continue on with Reese's therapy? At the end of the day, we had to stop Reese's therapy. And it's my, it's my opinion and many others that no family should have to make that decision. And, uh, you know, so, uh, but we did. And, uh, uh, you know, fast forward now, we've rebounded, but it's taken a lot of work. And um, at one point, and many families can relate to this, at one point, my wife and I could say we had one vacation day every 460 days, one vacation day every 460 days. So, um, but those are the cards that were dealt. We're blessed to have our son. We're blessed to have a uh, Brennan and Peyton, who have just been so fantastic as siblings. And I'm also going to say, Gene, we're blessed to have a community, family, and friend network that have provided us a lot of support. And when we got that diagnosis, we created a foundation, a nonprofit called the RT Autism Awareness Foundation. And we just said, you know, what? we're going to make a difference. We're going to educate. We're going to advocate. We're going to bring awareness to this. And uh, since we've done that, we've seen massive amounts of education, great support in the state of Minnesota. So we think it's made a difference. That's a tremendous story, Brad, and, I, and I'm glad that you went into it because I think a lot of people out here, they hear the word autism, you know, and, and I relate to people, you know, up until, you know, the formation of Project Lifesaver, I had never heard the, the word autism, didn't know what it was when it was first brought to my attention. Uh, and I did a little research. The uh, statistics then were one in 10,000, which that shows you, you know, what 23 years ago. So it's definitely made tremendous strides in the 23 years that I've been doing this. And I think a lot of that has to do with people like you that have been out there in the forefront, you know, pounding on the doors, beating people over the head with statistics and the, and the facts of life, you know, but you've alluded to a couple of things and I don't want to delve too much into your, into your private life, but I think it, it would be important for people to understand 
what kind of stressors this can cause on a marriage. You said that 70% of the marriages dissolve. I know in speaking at a lot of the autism conferences, and, and I don't mean this in any uh, degenerative way, I see mothers far more than I see fathers. And that kind of is indicative of what you're saying. So could you just give us a little bit of, all right, you had the diagnosis, you alluded to some of the stressors, but what did it do to you and your wife? Because other people are going to be facing this. Did you or could you reach out to anyone for help? My wife and I, Jean, got married late in life. I mean, I was 29 and she was 30. And and I think that actually helped us through this because my wife's a cardiac surgical RN, so she's a professional. And, and um, I will tell you this, my friend, if anybody were to tell me that I would be having a son with severe autism and that I'd be able to cope with it, I'd say you're, you're absolutely wrong. Um, but then when it's your kid, when it's your son, when it's your daughter, and knowing that you, when you look in, in, in our infants born into life, that they depend upon their mom and dad. Well, now in this case, Reese is going to always have to depend upon their mom and dad. And I just knew that at the end of the day, I have to look into his eyes every night and say, I love you, son. I'm going to go advocate for you. And so then it really turn, it turns you inside. And I will t- say this is that, so my wife and I, we're big in our faith. Um, if we didn't have the support of family and friends and, and God, I'm not sure we make it through today. But I will tell you this, Gene, I think what truly helped me through this process um, we by creating the foundation, by doing public speaking, by creating legislation. I've been involved in six legislative law changes in the state of Minnesota. I think that was, I, I, know, I don't think, I believe that was my therapy to cope with this. It really was. To be able to go out and help others. To, to, I've been involved in IEPs in schools. Um, we've had community family members that have had some differences between their significant others and how they should handle it. And going over there to talk with them and saying, it's okay, guys, I understand. You know, I got a call one night at eight o'clock at night where their individual uh, with a high function autism left their house and um, stayed with them till four in the morning, went home and, and cleaned up because the mom had to get their child to uh, school. And I'm in the sitting on the front porch of their step. And this this gentleman uh, with high function autism comes riding up on his bike and comes home. And it was such a relief to see. But there's just tensions in the family about certain things and whatnot. He had slept overnight all night long at a local park in uh in a playground, in a shed. And it just made my heart sink. The stressors, I mean, when Reese was growing up, is his ages three, four, five. I mean, there was times, Chief, he wouldn't get to bed till four in the morning. So I would lay with them. My wife and I would take turns. So now you got parents not getting some sleep. If you're dealing with a single parent, a single parent's going through that, the financial stress, you're dealing with what, what you know, the IEPs at school, you're dealing with county issues, you're doing the medical issues, you got OT and neurology appointments, you got all this. Um, and then the meltdowns at homes were just kind of crazy. I mean, it was just, you can't even picture it. I mean, I, I've always said to this day, and I truly believe that there's things that Brennan and Peyton saw at such a young age that no child should ever have to witness. But what we did as a family is we kept the can-do attitude. We always made this saying, this isn't just about us. It's just not about our family situation because there's other families out there going through just as much more. What can we do as a family to give back? And I truly believe by what we did with the support of family and friends and community, it truly helped our emotions to get through it. At the end of the day, we have not only become Reese's parents, but we're also his guardians and conservators. That's a whole nother process when someone turns 18. And, um, you know, but what we have to do now as parents is make sure that we have things set up for Reese because one day Joni and I won't be here anymore. 
So his well-being will be um, overseen by Brendan and Peyton. The stressors are unbelievable. You know, people, I just ask people, don't be so quick to judge. There's not everybody out there with autism that are on the severe end. It's 50% of them. Matter of fact, Gene, uh, autism is the fastest growing disability our nation faces today. Um, There's little supports. Joni and I were actually, just because we were a married couple with an income, you get... uh, it's a, you get penalized because the lacks of services, you could get some services, but they base it on income and they give you a parental fee. So, you know, there's not only do you pay taxes, but you have to pay for these services on top of that. So you just, people just can't afford it. Um, you would go out in the community, you know, there's so much that Joni and I did outside of the community, but we had to do it by ourselves because Reese would just maybe have a meltdown or he'd have something going on. People would stare and they'd look and it just, it makes it for an uncomfortable, comfortable situation. Uh, we were finally able to get him to go to church with us a couple times, and that was good. But literally what I challenge families with them when they're going through this, and this is what helped me to achieve, is that you can't look at the big picture down the road. If you really look at the big picture down the road, it can be so overwhelming. 90% of what we worry about in today doesn't ever happen. So why worry about the future when we don't know if it's going to happen? Just get through today. If you can get through today, ask questions, and we're in the day of the internet. What happens when someone gets diagnosed, like I did at the time, you're on the internet, you're looking at all kinds of options and services to help your child. Some of them is, some of it's good information, some of it's not. So I just think with all the stresses that go on with it, um, you know, I've been involved in situations where outside family members are quick to judge the moms and dads on, on how they're, they're handling their kid. Until you live with autism 24 7, 365, no matter if it's high functioning, no matter if it's severe, don't be so quick to judge because it is a demanding diagnosis. And I know what families are going through, and it's very emotional because you just don't know what the next day is going to bring. I can concur with that, you know, uh, and, and what you said about the future. The uh, I think the, the SEALs have a very uh, appropriate saying or credo that they go by, I think fits this. And that is the, the only easy day was yesterday. You know, now you got today and you have to go day to day. And I can appreciate what you say, you know, especially when we're talking about meltdowns. Uh, As you know, I have a granddaughter that has Asperger's. And I, until I actually witnessed a meltdown, I did not have a full appreciation of what kind of stressor that can be and how people react to it. But, uh, you know, it's, it is, it's demanding. I can see this demanding. I mean, when we were keeping and, and babysitting the granddaughter, very, very demanding. It's it's something that uh, there's no relaxation. Not, we've had, not to we've me. had many family and friends. They they said they don't know how we do it, and you know, it's just um you just do. And I think the other thing that's going on, and just for as an educational standpoint, society is just not really ready in terms of long-term long-term care for individuals with autism. Um, my wife and I are both turning 55 this year and Reese is gonna be 22. While he's growing older and stronger and we are growing older and weaker, we are not equipped as a society to take care of our individuals with autism. We see in the foreseeable future, um, Reese, I mean, he could be with us till he's 30. So we're gonna be in our 60s. Um, you know, we have, um, we have play group homes out there that will help take care of the physically handicapped things of that nature. But as it relates to autism, there are very few services, at least in the state of Minnesota and through all my research and being dialed in pretty good, 
pretty good. Our society in general, in the nation, is lacking um, group homes or residential services for individuals with autism. So that is a major concern of mine um, for our autism, autism community and our parents and guardians out there. You know, uh, do you think that uh, when all these statistics started to change and the CDC started to take a little closer look at this, and it one in 1,000 became one in 300, and that our government and even our medical uh, society failed to think about the fact that these kids are always going to have autism and these kids are going to be adults. What then? You know, where do we go from there when you and your wife and the caregivers that are now overseeing this? and doing what is necessary to sustain them are not around anymore. Uh, what happens then? I, I don't feel our government or the medical people put any thought into it. I think it snuck up on them. I still don't think they have it anywhere near uh, a handle on it. Uh, and I don't know what the answer is. You know, like one thing I, I saw and you alluded to it was, some of these IEP meetings can be really disastrous. Would you agree? Totally agree. And, you know, I think that's the one thing that we can talk about is, you know, the, the biggest question I always received is what's the cause of autism? And I can tell you to this day, there is no known cause or no known cure. There's a lot of speculation, a lot of different things that I won't get into, but I will tell you this, that our researchers, researchers our science must stay open to everything. Until science can tell us with medical certainty what the cause of autism is, you have to stay open to absolutely everything. Now, our, our government has failed us in this sense. I mean, you know, I saw, you know, you're right. There, there's one in 10,000 that I think went to one in 7,500, then one in 500. Now we're about one in 50, one child in every 50 births, that child is going to be diagnosed with autism. And what the government needs to understand at the state and local, at the state and federal level, because sometimes states handle things differently compared to the federal. But if we can get to these kids very early on with the therapy that's recommended by each child, each individual's provider, we can reduce the cost uh, on this uh, disability for long-term care. You know, we, we need to invest and pay the money up front to give these individuals the care and therapy that they need. And by doing so, is going to help the long term. If you don't, there's just a certain time frame that we need to get these individuals that where they can put, you know, to maximize their su success. I know when we are battling for insurance for Reese, I mean, I don't know the exact number, Chief. I, I don't want to say it, but I think I know that ages like two to eight, two to 10 years old are critical, critical times. So we want to want to get that information. One people also have to understand that while Reese is on the severe end, it's pretty easy to notice something's going on with Reese. We have many individuals with high-functioning autism. They're, they're working in jobs, they're driving vehicles, but the concern is they're very vulnerable. I've been involved in situations where an individual was working at a local restaurant, um, co-workers were taking his paycheck and getting some money and then using it for drugs. He was vulnerable that he would be caught up in some stuff where he was the go-between person. So even when you look on one side where we're dealing with the severe situation with Reese, the challenges for other families that have high functioning kids on the spectrum have different sets of challenges, but are just as demanding. Um, it is really time that our, I've been saying this for, you know, since 2003 now that we need a full court press 
on this disability and what can we do as a government at state and federal levels to help these individuals and to also help their families because everybody's in it together. And at the end of the day, Chief, when you do that, it also helps the taxpayer because the taxpayer money that goes into this right now, especially for long-term care, it can be reduced by up to two thirds with early and intense intervention. I can't agree more, uh, Brad, and, and I'd just like to relate. Uh, I think sometimes families, parents, uh, and even some medical don't even recognize when things are not exactly right. And and I'll give you a personal uh, uh, relating to that. My granddaughter, as I mentioned earlier, has Asperger's. When she was about two years old, uh, I guess because of my relationship with autism and going to the conferences and, and talking to people like you, I started to pick up on some things. One of the things I started to pick up on was that she needed structure all the time. Uh, and I started it with they, her parents said they couldn't get her to go to bed. They, she wouldn't go to bed. She wouldn't go to sleep. So when she stayed over with us, I started a structural like countdown, 30 minutes. I'd go in. Okay, 30 minutes, bedtime. 20 minutes, bedtime, 10 minutes, bedtime. And I would count down and I never had a problem getting her to bed and going to sleep from that when I did that. Also, we would, my wife and I would relate, okay, this is what we're going to do tomorrow. Now you, you need to know we're going here, we're going here, we're going here. And hopefully that all worked out because one of the things I saw was if it didn't, then you'd have a little meltdown. And it, my wife and I finally brought it when I first saw one of her meltdowns. She had been taken to the doctor, and the doctor said it was just the terrible twos. Well, that didn't look like the terrible twos to me. I've been through four boys, and their terrible twos didn't look anything like that. And this was the first real, real meltdown that I had seen. And we urged uh, my son and daughter-in-law, you need to take her to a neurologist. Well, when they did, that's when they got the uh, the diagnosis. Yeah, she had Asperger's. So my point there is that I don't think sometimes parents or even some medical people, especially general practitioners, don't recognize the signs. And I would say better safe than sorry. Go to a neurologist. If you see anything that is not what you think is a normal situation or that you feel like is comfortable for you and the child, take a look at it. Totally agree on that. And you, and you, I start out by saying our son has severe autism. When we took him to his initial appointment, our response was he's a boys, boys develop later than girls. Again, he's on the severe end. So the general practitioner at that point just basically said, don't worry about it. Boys develop later than girls and whatnot. So so it really gives credence to your point that that is so important that we just weren't going to sit back and ignore it because the signs were too evident. And kudos to you for that type of a schedule because that is important. Uh, we tell Reese all the time what's going on. We tell him if there's going to be an appointment. We tell him what's going on. We're going to tell him when he's a good time. Again, he may not be able to talk. doesn't mean he can't hear. Here, interesting fact on Reese, when he was at school at one point, they would go into the classroom and they would look at, they'd listen to the morning weather forecast. And then after that, the students would look outside at the weather. They had this app where you can spin temperatures 
and each student would spin a temperature, which they thought the temperature was going to be for the day. They said Reese was the most accurate student in that classroom, hitting the, the temperature for that day anywhere missing it from either one to two degrees. So how you just can't make that up. When you have temperatures from one degree all the way up to 100 degrees, and he was hitting it within one to two degrees, that was awesome. And you know, when you, when the, when you really look at it, for all I know, he knows how to tell time. He obviously knows English language. And um, he knows so much more than we know about. So that's what we always have to do. Another stressor, Chief, that I want to bring up because it's important for people to know. We can't think about a dental appointment for your kids. When you take your kids to a dental appointment, it's not a problem. They, they get checked out. For individuals like Reese and his peers, sometimes it's a full-blown anesthesia. They can't handle instruments. They can't handle the noises. They can't handle the light. So for Reese, he always has to be put under anesthesia and many times hospitalized for simple dental work. So those are just some of the other things that add to the stressors that we talked about earlier that, you know, until you walk it and, and live it each and every day, people on the outside really don't understand, but these are true life scenarios that families face every single day of their lives. Well, Brad, my hat's off to you. I don't think I can commend you enough just with my brief interaction with it. We've got about four minutes left. So what I would like to do very quickly all right. You're on the board of trustees for Project Lifesaver. You've been there since 2009. How did you get involved with Project Lifesaver? Well, I tell you, there's a, in, I live in Rochester, Minnesota, and there's a search for a missing young man in Wisconsin. heard about it, so I drove over. Long story short, after a couple of days and seeing that what goes on to a search, it was just amazing with the law enforcement, fire, public safety, and volunteers. And, and uh, sadly enough, they ended up finding that young man uh, deceased in a pond about 300 yards south of his home. I was driving my two and a half, three hours home. And it would just bother me immensely. So like all parents do, we're thinking, what can we do to help our community? I'm a firm believer to say, okay, if we can help our community and share the stories, other communities can learn. Um, so I found Project Lifesaver. And, um, and it just, I studied it. I'm not one to just jump on someone's bandwagon. I want to learn about it. Of course, I learned about Project Lifesaver at the time. Uh, we had communications, of course, with you. Went to our local sheriff and said, if we started this program, would you support it? And he goes, it's an awesome idea. We want to do it. Uh, we just don't have the funding for it. So our foundation at that time put up $15,000 to br uh, bring Project Lifesaver into our community. I have such a passion for what you, your staff, past and present volunteers do. It's just amazing. We sit here today as Project Lifesaver International 3,873 rescues, no fatalities. You know, the technology speaks for its volumes. And to be a part of this organization where our public safety officials across the nation and internationally are able to find individuals and bring these loved ones home to families, it's just immense. You talk about another stressor, that's another one. If, uh, if we're, Reese were to escape and leave our house, um, he's so vulnerable, I don't think he would be brought back home. Being on Project Lifesaver, it's been fantastic. We've implemented this program in many counties in our state um, through your inspiration, Gene, and what you've done. Went to our state legislature, legislature a few years back, asked for 300 grand. We got $80,000 to implement this technology through other counties in the state of Minnesota. So I'm just really passionate about what the program does. Um, it's tremendous of all the volunteer work that goes into it. And at the, at the end of the day, when you can bring a loved one home rather than knocking on the door, your former police officer, um, I think it's a lot better for a police officer to say, you know what, here's your loved one alive, rather than notifying next to kin that your loved one has passed away. So I just really want to thank you for your vision. 
I want to thank all the Project Lifesaver volunteers, uh, past and present, staff, past and present. Um, everyone plays a role to make this thing work. Everyone's a piece of the puzzle to make it work. I couldn't be more proud to be a board member for Project Lifesaver International. I will tell you this, I've been inspired by many uh, people like Eugene, uh, other board members, the staff, volunteers. It's truly an awesome organization. And I truly, if people are looking for to, to make a donation to a nonprofit and know that your money is being put to good use, I assure you this, 110% Project Lifesaver is that program. Brad, thank you. Uh, you've been an inspiration uh, just with your your experience and your ability to pass on your experience to us and your support has been instrumental in Project Lifesaver being where it is today and where I hope it goes in the future. Thank you. And I hope we can continue this conversation again sometime. I appreciate you having me on, Gene. God bless you and God bless everybody out there. Same to you, sir. That's all the time we have for this episode of Deploying High. Please join our mission of saving lives and never miss an episode by subscribing to DeployingHigh.com. I'm Chief Gene Saunders, the founder and CEO of Project Lifesaver International. We're bringing it all into view. Thanks for listening to this episode of Deploying High with Chief Gene Saunders, brought to you by Project Lifesaver International. Deploying High would like to thank all of our supporters across the country and around the world. All proceeds from Deploying High go to support Project Lifesaver International online at projectlifesaver.org. If you'd like to help support the mission, please subscribe to our channel, make a donation, and don't forget to tell a friend about us.